Welcome back to a new episode of The Talk, the podcast about Nordic entrepreneurship from Nordea Private Banking. Veterinary services have benefited greatly from the digitalization of the field and has also become a hotbed for new startups. Today I talked to the CEO and co-founder of the world's first digital veterinary practice. He is also a man who started out his entrepreneurial career at a mere 18 years of age. This is the CEO and co-founder of First Vet, David Prien. First Vet, how does all this come about? We have been working with pets for the last 13 to 14 years now. After basically uh, setting up a bunch of content-driven websites based out of Sweden, where the primary source of traffic was organic, primarily driven by um, a text-based question box, where our then 14 vets at that time answered questions as they came in. This service became hugely popular really quickly, and it was completely impossible to make any money out of. So that led to us starting our first proper venture, which uh, today is the biggest e-com or online retailer of pet supplies in the Nordics called Vetsu. That we divested from around four years ago now to a company called Musti Amiri, which is a Finnish, uh, Finnish retailer. And with us sitting at the sidelines of the veterinary market, which was developing so very rapidly, primarily driven by um, consolidation of private veterinary practices, we started seeing shifts in consumer behavior in regards to the willingness of people to, at an early stage, seek qualified advice or care. And started thinking that we should be able to do something else here uh, because there's a huge demand for a natural first point of touch, but there's no one really answering to that need. Leading us to starting First Vet full-time in March of 2016, launching in November that same year. So first of all, first you were super early with your first venture there, but then you were also super early with this, right? You were first in the world. At least that I know of. It was interesting. Kind of looking back at it, we fairly early identified that we wanted to do something along the lines of what became First Vet, but didn't really feel that the market prerequisites were there or that the market was sort of ready or willing to adopt this new type of behavior until 2015-16 because of the traction that the human telemedicine actors started gaining. And I'm thinking about the Swedish ones. Like we discussed one before jumping on this uh, recording, right? Like Dr. Pintesse uh, and Kri and Min Doctor, like there's a bunch of them. Uh, they started amassing a lot of... Uh, attention and traction we're like mm, okay this should be what paves the way for us let's start testing this out on how to best deliver this service through uh, and then go so just quickly for everybody what does first vet do so everybody is with us here the way that i usually like to describe it is we basically work like a veterinary practice that just happens to be online with the natural limitations that comes with it uh, we deliver our services through text phone and video with the emphasis on video because driven by the fact that pets can't talk for themselves, it makes a ton of sense for an experienced vet to actually see how a pet is doing, as opposed to just having a pet owner describe how the pet is doing. Because being one, it's completely fucking impossible, and it makes a ton of sense for a vet to actually judge how bad a wound is, how bad a limp is, how the pet is actually doing in relation to that description that you're otherwise forced to just do uh, over the phone. We've always wanted to create... um, a really strong customer experience and have since uh, since we launched back in 2016 initiated collaborations with I think it's 86 insurance companies across the seven markets where we're active as of today who distribute our services for free as part of their policies basically as well. 
Right. And are you only online or are you, do you also have physical locations? We have no physical locations. There are quite big differences from a regulatory perspective between human medicine and veterinary medicine. And we've always had the emphasis on just digital because we don't want to clutter our incentive in relation to, for example, pushing people into physical practices, but rather having the sole purpose as an actor in the value chain to just provide the right advice at the right time for everyone involved, which I think makes a ton of sense given the fact that it's a fully privatized field. Everybody pays through basically insurance here, right? Yeah, I, I think it's like an 80-20 split as of today. So 20% of our users pay out of pocket per consultation that they conduct. Uh, the rest is uh, is sponsored, so to speak, by their insurance company. Right, which keeps you out of, out of the sites for anybody saying things about tax money going in the wrong yes. direction and all that kind of thing. Right? Yes, and we also have to be really wary about doing the wrong thing. I think one of the biggest upsides of being active in a fully privatized field is if we were to do the wrong th- thing, people would simply cancel the collaborations with us. There are no sort of regulatory restrictions. We just have to do the right thing. And I think that's been a really positive force for us over these last six years as well. Yeah, then the market decides fully. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which I think makes a, a lot of sense, basically. So, okay. So, do, And do you also have a collaboration with uh, f- physical practices that you can send pets off to if they need to fix a broken limb or something? We've actually always tried being fairly independent in relation to physical actors because we don't want to have any sort of unfair incentivization of pushing our users to a certain practice because we get, for example, a higher kickback fee from those. Rather, we've always been working in a fairly independent way together with the insurance companies and our end users in steering them to the vet that they normally go to and to the largest extent possible. And, and then having these really, and this takes a ton of time to keep up, but referral maps where we have basically all information regarding the physical practices in the vicinity of the pet owner. So opening hours, who works there, what they work with, what equipment they have, so that we always can steer them to the right vet at the first instance, basically. And you have vets hired yes with you. So they're not uh, private contractors or anything they're no we have private contractors as well but it's not, it's not the marketplace model and this kind of is included in the way that we work like a veterinary practice that just happens to be online because from a quality assurance perspective and service delivery perspective uh we early on saw that it did make a huge difference for us to have our own vets basically and work with those vets rather than applying a marketplace model so I, I remember talking to one of the human-based yeah. <laughs> yeah. equivalents of you, yeah. and um, they said that they had doctors in different, working from different parts of the world in order to stay up 24-7. Mm-hmm. Do you do that as well? Or? Yes. Yeah. We didn't early on, simply because it was so far from the way that vets normally work, but it's something that grown on us over the years, basically. And today, I think we have a fairly dispersed workforce. We hire and employ around 500 vets as of today. But I think it's important to note that most vets don't work full-time at First Vet, but rather somewhere around 50 to 60%, because we like, and they like, being active clinically as well to keep up to date with all the latest development, etc. And it's so far from the way that vets normally have been working historically. Um, I mean, even in relation to other workforces, being a vet has normally been associated with basically being locked into an examination room for eight hours per day. Yeah, I mean, this is a beautiful world, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Are you working remotely as well? We've struggled with that policy during the last couple of years, actually. Uh, I've historically been one of the people a 
appreciating the office because I like having that as a kind of routine to have somewhere to go to. I don't know if that's been driven by me getting a bunch of kids over the last few years and wanting somewhere to somewhere, somewhere to flee to. Exactly, flee to. Yeah, exactly. Or, or or because I actually like the office. But we've been doing that, and it isn't. It hasn't been until like until Corona started that we started applying a remote policy. So now we try to keep it fairly flexible. So we have offices in our different countries to have a place for people to come into and and gather around but we allow people to work flexibly from from wherever they want you started this first company 13 or 14 years ago uh, uh, but i'm really the youngest of us as and well you're a young guy. Yeah. <laughs> so what, i'm how 31 old? years old yeah and how old are you yeah so you were yeah 18 i'm not sure how big that business actually was or if it's just my self-image but i'm way younger than the rest of us from a co-founder perspective i don't know how that happened it just happened uh, we got to know each other. I used to be able to code during those days as well. Uh, me and, uh, and one of our co-founders, Yuwa Kim, had a small little digital agency. We basically built e-com platforms, etc. And one thing led to another of us getting to know a bunch of other, other people, basically. What was your training? You, you just learned to code on your own or how did that? Yeah, as a kid, I did that. Uh, I can't anymore, though, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but uh, I, I still went to uni and stuff. So I studied economics mainly driven by me not knowing what I wanted at that time. And then I guess just literally one of these things where just one thing leads to another over the years. It's a wonderful world to live in and and work within, you know, with pets, because it is so much yet to do within this market and field. And it's one of these markets where it's really easy to launch and come up with ideas and do and execute on ideas that just are win-win for everyone involved. You can be fairly uncompromising when it comes to pets about doing the right thing. Because at least what I've come to learn over these last few years is that by doing the right thing, that's what actually leads to success in the end. If you optimize to make money, you won't optimize to make money. No. You will, if you optimize to create value, you will optimize to make money. Yeah, but I think it's going to be an interesting world. I mean, things are changing so quickly in relation to what gets valued from a venture capital type of perspective, etc. Right now, it's going to be interesting to sort of see what pops out on the other end of this, right? Uh, because I feel that so many things are, are changing. Not in relation to sort of inner mission vision, but in relation to what these financial actors actually value on the broader market. So what would be, if you have some advice, I mean, you started super young, you just um, kind of drifted into this somehow and, you know, created this amazing career and now you're the CEO. Do you have any advice for an 18 year old in those shoes or any entrepreneur really? I've been asked this question, but I've also been one of these people that just have sort of rolled along with it. I think it's so very circumstantial in relation to what you do. For me personally, it's been super important having more experienced co-founders around me because it's allowed me to accelerate my own development from a personal perspective and also really getting the right team in place and sort of the founding team in place fairly quickly has been important for us in order to set a good culture because I value that, I value that a lot. Sort of friendly, transparent, kind-hearted type of type of work environment is very important for me. And I, I feel and hope that we've achieved that. It doesn't have to be a lot of people early on, but a few people that really shares the vision and mission with you and, and, and stick with you and sort of ride along for the ride has been very important for us. One thing that I keep hearing and that I know myself is true is that starting a company is really hard. And in order to do it, you have to have fun along the way. Yeah. I've always had this funny relationship like, Many people that you meet as entrepreneurs and 
and founders of startups say that they love what they do. And I love what I do, but I also hate what I do. Uh, and that might be a weird thing to say, right? But I'm one of these people that are kind of anxiety-driven. So I wake up every morning having some level in me saying that everything is going to fall to pieces today. So like, I love what I do every day, 24-7. But it's also kind of like, oh my god, we need to do more all the time. And I think that's taken a toll on uh, on me personally over these years. Because to be on top of that all the time, every day, it's... um. It's kind of energy consuming, actually, especially, you know, with circumstances changing so very rapidly around you, having to adapt to that being one step, trying to be at least one step ahead of it all the time. It takes a lot, you know, from all different types of perspective, at least it has for me, us creating a family during these years. I'm so grateful for Catherine for, you know, spearheading family work and allowing me to do this because it really is a team effort in relation to it. And people being understanding around me, basically, and sort of facilitating uh, my mind being somewhere else, thinking about work all the time. You know, it sucks to a very large extent. And I've been one of the people who really can't disconnect from it. I think that's uh, something that I've started doing fairly recently as well. It's been a learning experience so far. So what is uh, what is the future for you guys? What, what do you see coming up next? We've always thought about our service delivery as the perfect entry point to create like a trust-based relationship with pet owners using our digital veterinary service. But you don't visit a vet that often. You visit a vet like one, maybe two times per year. And to build a really trust-based but sticky relationship with users based on something that you do once per year, that's kind of tough, I think. At least it has been for us historically, but it's been working really well. And we've been thinking about how to sort of expand that relationship from a frequency perspective, from a revenue perspective for that sake, like all of these different type of scenarios. And and that has led to us uh, coming up with this hypothesis that we call the onion. And we add onion layers on top of the core service, which is the veterinary service. And these basically don't differ too much uh, from the offerings that a normal veterinary practice has. So you visit a vet, you get the help that you need, and you, then you go out and you buy the products that could that you get recommended. So we've launched our own e-com, for example, as part of First Vet. We did that mid last year. It's been going tremendously well. That's only been in Sweden so far. We're expanding that to the UK now. It's been a huge success for, so far. And we're planning on doing that step by step in the coming few years, basically. And then we're, you know, we're we're stemming from Sweden and the Nordics, countries that have unique market dynamics specifically in relation to a very high insurance penetration of pet insurance that is and during these last few years we've expanded into markets where insurance penetration is way lower i believe a lot in sort of transparency and and openness and uh and collaboration rather than wanting to do something as a standalone entity you know well sounds like you have some things to do and uh you have a lot of kids at home and that's correct super (laughs) grateful that you took the time to come over and, and talk to me about this thank you bye thank you bye 